your heart stop. Yeah. They had to use adult doses of shock form. So it was necessary to try to revive you, to resuscitate you? Hmm. For 32 minutes. That's a long time. It's a long time. So what you just heard there is Bradley Gibson, one of Beverly Allett's victims. He survived. He went through quite a trial um, afterwards, and he is quote unquote normal <laughs> now if you don't count the um, psychological distress and uh, trauma that he's gone through. So, yes, I'll tell you more about that later. It is Karen and Mary. And we're here to do part two of the Beverly Allett story. So, um, hopefully we'll get through this in this episode, but it may take uh, another after this to get through it because we may be filling it with some angry comments but we'll try to keep that down to a uh keep that down to a dull roar okay do you want to just get into it yes so that was from uh, obviously from a documentary about uh, about her yeah um actually BBC it is about her but it's more about um the victims i'll put the links in the show notes so that uh if you guys want to go watch it in full um you'll be able to so well, we didn't do an intro. I think everybody knows what we're all about. But in case you're a first-time listener, hello, hello, hello. Uh, welcome to Stat Shocking Traumas and Treatments. And I am your host, Karen Wickham, coming to you from beautiful Toronto, Ontario, Canada. That was my cat climbing. And that is the last noise you're going to hear. They have been amazing all morning. <laughs> they have been. We have construction going on. It's finally stopped for a second. Oh, my God. And now the cats are like, let's play. And if you let them out, what do they do? They, they cry. frigging cry. So we're going to try to keep this as good sounding as possible. Sorry to break in. This is a very serious story, but uh, I don't know. I, I just thought we'd warn you guys. We want to give you the feel like you're sitting in a living room. Talking. Uh, talking about Hanging this. With us. Yeah. So um, I hope that uh, works for you. So as you can hear, Mary, Mary is here today. Hello, um, everybody. But I think Mary is going to be here every day. Every day well, that... I hope uh, so. Yeah. <laughs> Oh, you mean on the show? <laughs> on the show. Yes. Um, we, uh, Whenever possible, I'll be joining Karen. Yeah. We want, want to, uh, we like working together and we liked uh, the conversational uh, part of this. Uh, mm. But anyway, okay. So we hope you like it too. Let's, let's just get into this now. Okay. On March 5th, 1991, another child died in the pediatric floor at Grantham Stephen Hospital. It was 11-year-old Timothy Hardwick. Now, Timothy's life began with tragedy, if you want to look at it that way. He was born with severe brain damage, um, diagnosed with CP. He was blind, mute, and couldn't walk. For obvious reasons, this made him very vulnerable because he couldn't express himself. He couldn't, you know, Alice in there doing her horrible things, but he couldn't say, you know, this hurts or stop um and or relay back what he could remember or why are you giving me that yeah i want my mom and dad yeah exactly um i mean he was quite young yeah he was 11 you know so he could um definitely express something but in this this made him absolutely 100 percent vulnerable he was the youngest child in the family and uh helen and robert hardwick had a daughter and they were hoping to have a boy to complete their family and Helen became pregnant when her daughter was six years old. Um, this, they were a really healthy, active family. They would go out and go on trips and walks and do really, you know, active things with their family. So they were looking forward, you know, now we have a full family and this will be great. Uh, her pregnancy was uh, uneventful until about two weeks. And then she became really ill. She developed um, hydrocephaly. Oh, goodness. Yeah. And had to have fluid removed from her brain. That's serious. Oh, yeah, that'll, I mean... affect the fetus, too. I, I, it seems like a pretty unusual thing to happen. I haven't really even... I mean, I don't know every pregnancy that's out there, but that's definitely um, hmm. an unusual symptom unless she already had something underlying going on. 
And, you know, you just don't go have a random CT scan when you become pregnant, you know, to... Uh, so she must have started to exhibit symptoms. Maybe she had a tumor or something. Um, I don't know. Um, well, well, we'll talk more about that. So she had the surgery to remove the fluid and try to, you know, correct the problem. And two weeks later, uh, Timothy was born via C-section. Everything seemed to be great. Uh, he seemed healthy. But shortly after, Helen had a stroke. Oh, no. Yeah. I and mean, her entire left side of her body was paralyzed and she developed epilepsy. Yeah, so her husband Robert had to take leave from work to care for his wife and his newborn and his six-year-old daughter. So as Timothy got older, he was not reaching his milestones. Mm, and okay. yeah, after a series of tests, it was determined, like I said before, severe brain damage, cerebral palsy, cerebral palsy blindness, and unable to walk and, and talk and, and epilepsy as well. Yes, I, I often tell some of my clients this, that cere cerebral palsy is not, um, it's usually from lack of, of oxygen of some sort. It's a hypoxic event of some sort. So, you know, uh, I had a, one client who had moderate CP and it was, she had a stroke as a baby, like as she was being born. Mm -hmm. So there's usually some sort of traumatic, so maybe the hydrocephaly in the mum affected him somehow. Yeah. Because the other way that, that babies get CP oftentimes is... Um, Sometimes through difficult births when there's too much compression on the head and well, the cord is sometimes wrapped or it's, something, um, or vacuum at too much compression in the cranium. So, some of it, uh, or a good majority of it, is you can call "quote unquote" doctor error. Now, I'm not, you know, things happen during pregnancy where you have to do whatever you need to do to deliver the baby, and sometimes, like you said, suction or forceps can cause this uh, to happen. Uh, so it's, you know, sometimes they are a healthy newborn until complications take place and, and this can happen. Yeah, or, and since he was born by C-section, it must have been, you know, in utero something, that happened. Yeah, because... something happened, you know, maybe during the, um, you know, she when she did. had her sur surgery and stuff like yeah. that, like something might have might have happened. But oh. Uh, oh, so, yeah, um, poor family, right? Mm -hmm. um, so after so after the test they they found the the degree uh, to his um on disability and unfortunately they were unable to uh to care for timothy because his disabilities were so profound and you know with the mom being paralyzed on her left side uh you know they did this reluctantly and um you know very very sad situation but you know i've seen some I've seen families whose child was profoundly disabled and they decide to care for the child at home. This is very delicate how I want to put this. Okay. And they're married or not, you know. Um, I don't even know why I said married. Uh, husband, you know, mom, dad, mom, mom, dad, dad, however you want to uh, look at it. Possibly other children. Yeah, and then other children in the family. So I'm going to give an example of um, a mom and dad uh, who had three children, and then um, their child was born with severe brain damage. Um, she had just pretty much uh, her brain stem and a little bit more um, functioning. And um, by the time, well, she was frequent in and out of the ER because she would have... Uh, Many, many, many different, uh, you know, things that would go on uh, health-wise, uh, seizures, uh, uh, difficulty breathing, um, infections, such and such. This mom was convinced that this child was communicating 100%, um, like she had suffered no intellectual uh, damage, which 100% was impossible. The other three children were getting next to no care or attention from mom. And the dad was basically working full time to be able to support the family and therefore wasn't able to give attention to the children as well. And their marriage was done. He, they were just, I mean, it's un unbelievable what parents will tell you because they, you know, they need someone to talk to kind of thing. And, uh, and, uh, yeah, I mean, he was working to provide for his kids and, you know, the kids basically lost their parents 
and um, and this all the attention was given to this uh, you know child who deserved the best care possible. But you see how this family fell apart completely. You know what I mean? So sometimes the best decision decision is to put the child in care where they can get the 24-hour care that they deserve and they need. Um, because you're not doing the family or the child, you know, you're doing them yourself and your child a disservice if you're unable to give proper care and, and things like that. Now, however, that's experiences that I have witnessed and whatever you decide for your family is what you decide. You know, I don't, uh, please don't anyone take this as me saying, oh, your child should go into care. Well, I think you have but, to. But, you know, in that situation, it shows the repercussions of it. And um, you see what I'm saying? And, and, and But there's also a lot of care homes that give terrible care to um you know, I don't want to say a lot, but there are care homes. You hear about the horror stories of, of someone um, being completely disabled, and um, yeah, and but then there's some that aren't. I mean, that's I, the point. I know that's someone the thing. whose child has got a, a condition, like sh- same thing. You know, you okay? So then I'm gonna ne- not neglect, but I'd be doing a disservice to myself and my family when this place is fully capable of taking care of her and she this particular condition she has like violent self-harm mm-hmm. things and stuff so and so, just because you know the, she visits her regularly yeah, and stuff yeah. but just because the she's ch- happy there right? exactly like just because the child is in um in care at a um you know at a, at a hospital a care um center it doesn't mean that you don't stop loving your child visiting your child and parenting your child you know um it means that they're getting care and you can provide the best love that you can. And then also towards yourself, your family and, you know, so, I mean, I think about how tough that decision is, you know, how do you weigh is, is, are any of them considered a good or bad decision? I think it just has to be weighed, um, you know, how it's best for, for all. And like I said, the disabled child may not get anywhere near the care or stimulation, um, socialization that they would if they were in a good facility that cares for them. And of course, a lot of times money is pro it's prohibitive, you know, some people yeah. can't afford. So well, it's, it's in this tough case too. You had one parent who was, had serious, um, disabilities themselves. Too, exactly. Right? So, so, you know, that, that's, a, that's a, a moral ethical dilemma here that each family has to go through uh, on top of everything else. So, um, I'm sure every parent makes the, the, what they think is, or believe in, or in their heart is the best decision for their child. I just wanted to speak at both sides of it, uh, just to demonstrate how difficult, uh, this can be. So in this case, the care home that Timothy went to was absolutely amazing. And it was only about a half an hour away from the parents' home. So he thrived there and he was well cared for and loved by the staff. And he, as best to his ability, knew that who his parents were. They were his mom and dad, and they visited him all the time. They were very involved in his care. So, I mean, it turned out to be a really great situation because he, you know, got everything he needed and the family was able to to carry on as well as a unit. It was just, you know, unfortunately he couldn't be at home. Now, um, you know, they said he was a happy boy. He loved music and, you know, he was just a real joy to everybody. So on Tuesday, March 5th, he had been having a series of seizures that they were unable to control. And he went to uh, Grantham Castephen Hospital. Alet was the nurse assigned to care for him. So he had been improving uh, over, you know, a couple of days and he was stable. And his, like I said, seizures seemed to be under control. Alet was assigned uh, as a nurse for his care. Um, And he had been improving. And his seizures, they seem to be able to, you know, give whatever medications to get them under control. But by 6.30 that evening, he was dead. His okay. pa- Wait a minute. What? what? Six th- so he came to the hospital and by the end of the day, he was dead. He was dead. Before dinner time. Yes. Um, and yet he'd been improving. And he had been improving. So I don't really have a lot of details around sort of what happened but I can say she was and she was his nurse he was uh improving and then he died 
Um, and at this time, his death didn't come under suspicion. You know, so he had comorbid conditions. So that could be written off as a um, natural death or uh, suspect. You know what I mean? Like they could... Yeah, so there was no... So did you just, like, go into arrest or something, or...? Yeah, well, yeah, respiratory arrest, and uh, he he died. So, um... So, you, so they would think, oh, maybe something to the seizures, it was too much for him. Exactly. Something, okay. Yes, exactly. So, um, yeah, you know, and especially if a child is, um, or any a person, is not very... Um, they don't move, you know, they're not in motion a lot, walking, moving, stretch, you can get clots, uh, you know, at risk for things like that. So they weren't exactly sure what caused it, but they didn't rule it as, um, a suspected or, you know, unnatural death. Um, but, uh, in time he would be confirmed as her next victim. Okay. Now let's talk about Kaylee Desmond. She was in the hospital between March 3rd and 8th. And she was 14 months old at the time. She had spent a lot of time in the hospital because she was born with a cleft palate and couldn't feed. So she was there for about five months and everybody knew her and she was well loved by the staff. Remember, it's a small hospital and and she was on ward four to recover. Um, her parents were constantly at her bedside. They took turns. So she was never left alone. You know, uh, she always had mom or dad there with her. So on March 3rd, Kaylee was admitted to Ward 4. She was fighting a chest cold that had turned into a chest infection. She had been on antibiotics at home and it hadn't cleared it up. So considering her history and age and things like that, decided to uh, bring her in and admit her to Ward 4 um, for observation and some treatment. So over the next six days, she was recovering nicely. Um, and as before, her parents stayed at her bedside, never let her left her alone. On March 9th, Kaylee went into respiratory failure around 1 a.m. After being recovered, it happened another two times up until 4 a.m. where it happened a fourth time. She was transferred to the NICU at Queen's Medical Center in Nottingham. From this point on, I'm going to call Queen's Medical Center QMC, okay? Okay. Um, so with intensive support, she started to recover well. However... She had suffered significant brain damage uh, from lack of O2. Uh, three days later, she was back on the ward and went home shortly after. No one could figure out what had caused her respiratory failure. Now, I'm going to talk a little bit more about her, um, or I can actually talk a bit about her now. Now, as an adult, she... Um, so she survived. She survived, sorry, yeah. She survived mm -hmm. and... Um, but she had severe brain damage and, um, intellectually she's, um, she's, she's quite, uh, she's, she may be functioning at a, a five-year-old, six-year-old level, but she can walk and, and feed herself and stuff like that. But she has massive anxiety, even into her going into her thirties now. She has to, like her mom and dad have taken care of her. Like I said, she was like more high functioning, but I mean, this should never have happened to her, but she has nightmares. They, she has to keep her like closet do doors open. Her parents have to check under her bed for her at night. Um, and her bedroom door has to be open and her anxiety is all day. Like she'll look around cause she thinks Alet is coming after her. So did, did she, um, I don't know how you would interview her, but did, she was like 14 months old. So would she have memories? Yeah, of, of... she does have memories of it. In fact, I have an interview with her that I'm going to see if I can uh, put together and, and play. I just want to, you know, I got to be careful with copyright stuff and whatever. But uh, yeah, I mean, in, in the uh, the video, uh, she is, she's terrified and she was, was crying and anxious and had to stop uh, sometimes because oh, of the, the trauma that she's gone through. And um it, it's just Poor been thing. horrible for her. Yeah. And um, at one point she got a settlement when it was all said and done, I think for like 11 grand. So like, you know, 20, 20 grand here. So $11,000 or pounds for all of her pain and suffering and trauma. Okay. And, and that's not, here's the kicker. She was getting uh, support for her disability um, benefits through the government then a few years later she was awarded this 11 grand they made her pay back 
the disability pa um, payments that she got and said she's no longer eligible. What the fuck? Yeah, I know. Absolutely, absolutely atrocious. So uh, that's, you know, kind of gives you an idea of what happened long term with this uh, with this woman. It's just and family. I mean, it's absolutely horrible. So let's talk about uh, another little boy, two-year-old uh, Yik Hung Chan. He's also known as Henry and his parents, Eddie and Jenny. Um, he was happy, energetic, just full of life. He was, a, you know, like an amazing little boy. Um, on Thursday, March 28th, uh, he fell 20 feet out of his sister's bedroom window, a complete unfortunate accident. Yikes. Yeah, and he fra fractured his skull in two places. That's serious. Mm -hmm. He was admitted to Ward 4 for observation and over the next few days his condition worsened he had severe headaches nausea vomiting and lethargy yes yeah, well possible swelling on the brain i would think or meningitis you know different things like that i mean right. you think about uh what happened uh anything like that with a with a head Central injury hematoma mm -hmm, yeah mm -hmm. so it was looking like he was going to need to be transferred to the nicu at uh qmc so on sunday he spiked a high fever and started having seizures. Now the seizures could have been from the fever or completely unrelated. Uh, his heart rate climbed and he went into cardiac arrest. He was resuscitated and then transferred to QMC. The CT scan revealed a blood clot, clot in his brain and he went home the next day. His cardiac arrest remained a mystery. Would they send a kid home with a blood clot the next day, like from the brain? That seems kind of... Yeah, I guess it depends on whether it resolved itself or they resolved it or, you know, I know it, it does sound uh, awful, awful fast I mean, to me. Yeah. Yeah. Like, but I mean, I guess if. Now I want to break this down a little bit because other kids. Well, kids, a kid blood clot would be different than like an adult from years of like smoking and drinking kind of clot or something probably. No, right? well, I, I think a clot is a clot, but no, they, they I, I see what you're saying. Like all the other. Um, Clacky clots. You yeah. Know, that kind of thing, right? All the other vessels would be healthy. They wouldn't be all right. yeah, gum, gummed up with stuff. Maybe a, a clot from just from the fall. Or the clot because his heart, his heart stopped. Oh, and you know man. it caught it caused a clot um so this is where i'm looking at it because other kids had cardiac arrests on that floor so i'm wondering if it could have been from that or it was unrelated but cardiac arrest kids don't have heart attacks and then a clot in the brain could have been from the head injury but it could have been because his heart stopped or maybe the meds she gave okay so i just have that in the back of my head made, made me think um, the next little guy we're going to talk about is Paul Crampton. He was five months old. He was uh, taken into hospital on January 20th, 1991. And he was admitted to Ward 4 with bronchitis, or sorry, bronchiolitis. Over a period of the next three days, he had been doing well. Like, he was recovering nicely. And Alet, unfortunately, was among the staff caring for baby Paul. So soon after these... Uh, three days he suddenly fell very ill he was diaphoretic so extremely you know sweaty pale cyanotic so turning blue and seizing his blood work revealed that he was in severe hypoglycemic shock okay he wasn't diabetic no not he had not had a history of diabetes at all he's only five months old yeah well, i mean you can that doesn't mean anything okay but still but yeah it wasn't why he was there yeah out of nowhere, his blood sugar dramatically uh, went into the boots, and they had to, like, slam him with um, medication to try to get it back up. Um, so he needed a emergency treatment to recover. And raising the blood sugar of a child is a delicate process. Like, you just can't slam fluids and stuff like that into them because their brain will swell. Okay. And you oh, have yeah, to delicately look at the, you know, the electrolytes. Not the same as an adult, right? Exactly. The first time that I was in the ER treating a, an adult, I mean, there's a huge protocol, but they were flying fluids through this, uh, to this person with like potassium and everything. And I'm like, whoa, wait a minute. I saw two bags of saline with potassium in it. And I'm like, did someone fuck up? With the uh, right because with you, the fluids you'd come from because you kids. would just never do that with a kid and then I'm like, I mean I didn't like in my head I was what the fuck and then I looked at the orders and then I was you know I talked to staff um, to a coworker and sort of just did a, a quick explain and they're like nah you know, they kind of like chuckled it off and 
of course, you know, I was going to follow. But the first thing that hit my head was, Jesus, no, what is going on? And Yeah, because you're used to treating itsy-bitsy babies and yeah, kids, right? Yeah, kids. So, I mean, that was uh, it was like one of my rude awakenings that, okay, you're no longer in, uh, what did they, was that, uh, you're no longer in Oz or whatever. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, um, so yeah so it's it's a like i said it's a it's a delicate process um so while this was going on Alit was overheard saying that little paul had hypoglycemic well before the blood term uh, blood work results returned so okay so i was gonna get this right so hypoglycemia so low sugar yeah low, right so his insulin was too high it was really high yeah okay. so um how so would she know exactly that? Mm-hmm. so he gets he becomes very ill they're treating him and or like you know emergency treating him and she's like i think it's his blood sugar okay you know of course the 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 doctors already suspected that because of his symptoms right but still it's like how would you know beverly mm-hmm. um so even though the doctor suspected it like i said they treated him and um but like before the blood work came back she magically knew what was going on he was stabilized but this happened two more times before he was rushed to uh qmc think about it i mean if he has an incredibly high um insulin like low blood sugar you're gonna have to continue let's you know he could have the sugar and then boom because it's still circulating his system he would have to get constant um so it's a rebalancing act of yeah constant exactly levels yeah so um thankfully he made a full recovery um thank god and i'm gonna get into a little while about what his blood work came back as oh yes this will be interesting interesting, yeah okay next we're gonna talk about uh becky and katie phillips they were twins and for twins yeah and they were born premature and they had to spend the first five weeks of their life being monitored closely in the nicu at grantham hospital their parents, Peter and Sue, couldn't wait for the little girls to come home. You know, imagine having to wait five weeks uh, for them to come home. Hmm. And they had like a lovely nursery set up for them. They, everything was 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 ready and waiting. But unfortunately, just nine days after returning home, little Kaylee had to sorry, little Katie had to be admitted to the hospital um, because she had diarrhea and vomiting, like a um, gastro type thing. And uh, so they wanted to monitor and put, th- you know, give her fluids and, and stuff like that. So Alet was one of the nurses on the floor that day. And Sue recognized her right away because they had gone to school together. But it seemed like Alet was just like looking right through her, ignoring her. Yeah. Okay. I mean, as so... a nurse, you don't do that. I mean, you, you know, I mean, it could be the perception of the of the patient. But still, I mean, you're friendly and nice to everybody because even if you don't want to, you have to be. <laughs> you know what I mean? It's your job. Well, she's pretty messed up sounding it sounded I mean, like in high school she wasn't you know yeah. but i mean you'd be, you have to be person. professional yeah and uh so so after four days katie was well enough to go home but non okay so this is where it gets weird but okay she went home for a little while but all three of the children got sick so her sister becky oh sorry yeah becky and their their older brother Jamie, he got sick. Okay, so so they, okay, so the twins and their older brother. Yeah, so they sick. all had to, to to go to the hospital. So some sort of a bug, probably. Yeah, exactly. So they were all admitted to ward four, and the whole family was practically living there. So parents at the bedside, oh, three family. kids. Yeah, exactly. Um, Paul also had um, he was married previously um, before Sue, and he also had a 16 year old daughter at home. So, uh, yeah, it was, a. <laughs> but she didn't get sick. Just she did not ones. that I know okay. of. Yeah. Okay. Um, so they were in the hospital for five days. The twins were dis- uh, discharged a couple days earlier and then Jamie, and then they, they all went home. But, um, the whole time they were there, Alec didn't talk to Sue and she wasn't in care of the kids. then and so she didn't you know um interact with the kids either you interact with all the patients you know if you see them you interact hi smile like whatever you see he's cute you know like 
you don't just you, i i can't think of a nurse would be on the floor that wouldn't inter would interact only with their patients and not even like would just look through everybody else so i just think that's really weird so um so after a week in total all three kids were discharged home however becky just couldn't seem to kick this um so she was back two days later with projectile vomiting and diarrhea so after further testing, it turned out that Becky was not tolerating her formula. So it seemed to be the, a formula problem. That's so, the projectile vomiting. <laughs> yeah. So um, they found one that agreed with her. They wanted just to keep her in for another day to make sure she was tolerating it. So she was ready to go home the next day. So this is where it gets really weird. The, the tiny bit of the things to come is that Alet, who had not been caring, approached Sue the only time she spoke to her the whole time and said, I don't think your daughter should go home. I don't agree with the doctors and I think she should stay. So that's, that's odd. Okay. So she basically ignored her the whole time, had nothing to do with the care of the child. And then all of a sudden she's an expert thinking she shouldn't go home. Exactly. So here's a quote from Sue. She didn't want her to go home. She said she didn't like the look of her and thought she should stay in. The sister on duty had a good look at her and said Becky seemed fine to her and told me I could take her. The decision seemed to annoy Nurse Allett, end quote. So Sue took Becky home. Paul was at work and she was sort of settled in with her little family. Now they're all home. You know, things seem to back to normal. Paul's back at work, etc. At about 8 p.m. that night... Becky started to scream and she appeared to be having seizures. I mean, you look back and you say she probably was, but you know, her limbs were shaking. She, um, and she was screaming. Paul returned home to find a frantic Sue. So he, you know, relieved her, took Becky into his arms and he let out a whole, like she just let out a terrible scream. So they hadn't even been home for four hours. They didn't know what to do. And Becky started to finally settle. She fell asleep and they put her to bed. So she was sort of having this intermittent, you know, pain and discomfort. And then she'd go to sleep. Um, They thought it was gas, new formula, you know, things like that going on. And so they, they thought it might be that. Yeah. I mean, colicky babies, like when they have bad gas and stuff, I guess they can really wail. But it doesn't really explain the... Unless like she was screaming so much that her little body was just like angry, you know, and, and, you know, uncomfortable and they're, you know, a little, but yeah, I, I agree, I agree with you, but Hmm. okay. So once again, so it started again at 1030 at night and it looked like she was having like seizures, they say in, in retrospect. And so they called the on-call GP and he was there by 11 o'clock and he really felt that it was colic. Again, they were unable to settle her. And at 2.30, Katie woke up for her regular feeding. They checked on Becky and they saw that her little body was like, it was in spasms. Um, And I think now, you know, she was probably having some kind of a a seizure. Uh, But then she fell back to sleep. So with Sue, she thought she was going crazy. She was like, you know, is this all in her head? Uh, Was she seeing things? Was she overtired? You know, all normal concerns, uh, especially for an incredibly exhausted mom. Oh with goodness, kids that no, have been in and out imagine. of hospital. Yeah. And in care since birth. <sighs> yeah. Preemies. And... Mm-hmm. So Katie was fed again. Uh, and uh, Becky took, sorry, Sue took Becky to bed with her and Paul just to, to keep a close eye on her. She, uh, Paul fell asleep. Uh, sorry. Sue fell asleep. And Paul woke her up distraught saying that Becky had stopped breathing. Um. Paul started CPR on uh, the little girl and they phoned an ambulance, but they didn't think the ambulance would get there on time. So they drove to the eMERGE. He carried on with the CPR with her in the car. When they arrived, Sue just like went to the nurse's station. They took her directly into the resuscitation room. But sadly, she had already died. Oh my God. Yeah. And there was nothing that could be done. So she uh, was uh, died at... They, they said it to 3.55 a.m. on April the 5th, 1991. So how did this happen? What happened? Like, I mean, little babies. Yeah. Like, what happened? Like, what caused this? She had been home, I think, what, 12 hours. Less, you know. Could she have put something in her formula? Well, we're going to get to all that. 
So there were no answers. Uh, the nurses and the staff, they were absolutely devastated. The doctors were baffled and they were just like, what? They were just so upset themselves. So how did this little baby admitted to the hospital twice in two weeks, one for, for five days once, two days next, and die within 12 hours of being discharged home? What did they miss? Was there negligence? They just, it was just so like overwhelming. And she couldn't stop thinking about what Alex said to her. Okay. But it's not what I thought she was worried about. Like, hmm, how did she know? She was like, she knew. She was, she was right. Like she was right. As no, opposed she was to setting her up. Yeah, because exactly. Okay. Um, Evilness. We were saying earlier that, you know, you were saying that there isn't a word like, is there, you're saying, is there something worse than diabolical? Because every word you say just doesn't seem, every word we say doesn't seem to fit how horrific, how terrible, how demented this woman is. Okay. And again, this will start to un unravel itself, especially with these two, um, with this family. So now Sue had to rush home to get Katie. Okay. And she was so worried that Katie may be sick as well or still sick that they went and got her and the the hospital admitted her for observation just to make sure yeah no. yeah oh right into the jaws of the beast yeah um and and doing it for like as far as i'm concerned a very reasonable responsible like reason to do it yeah no i at that point, I could yeah, see totally why they're like, oh every... my gosh, we just lost our other child. Yeah. Now we better make sure they're preemies. You know, I, I totally, totally rational response. Yeah. So like Not we knowing. know, uh, you know, we have all the information, but then, so we go, no, but I mean, it makes sense, right? Um, so 7.30 that morning, Alit arrived for her shift and she was assigned to be Becky's nurse for the day. So Alec greeted Sue with uh, condolences and assured her that Katie was in good hands and would be fine. And, but Sue was inconsolable. I mean, she was furious with the hospital, wanting to get answers. Now, the police were investigating because it was a, uh, you know, a, a sudden death, uh, you know. Um, and this is what they do with any sudden death with a child and I believe with uh, adults even, like, um, not expected. So t uh, Sue was terrified for the life of Katie um, she was literally, you know, at the end of her rope. Um, Alec took full advantage of Sue and Paul's distress. You know, she must have just been rubbing her hands going, okay, you know, let's get started. She manipulated them in their desperation. The Phillips felt that Alec was the only person that they could trust in the hospital. So these grieving parents were exhausted and in shock and, and their grief was overwhelming. Paul and Sue needed to get some sleep. Okay. So they were of course afraid to do so. They wanted to stay at their baby's side, but Alec encouraged the parents to go home and get some sleep. So they had no intention of going home and getting some sleep, but they thought, okay, we can go home, you know, take a shower, grab some stuff and come back. Cause at that point, Katie was being observed. Okay. She wasn't like actively unwell. They had her there for precautions and they had grown a trust for Alad at this point. They're like, okay, we can whip home and whip back. And so Sue stated, this is what Alad said to her, quote, you go, I will look after her. She will be all right with me. End of quote. So reluctantly, the parents went uh, for a little break and they weren't even home for a half an hour when they got a call from the hospital. Katie was in respiratory distress and she, they needed to get back there ASAP. When they returned, they found the little girl intubated and on a respirator. Um, the most senior nurse, uh, Jean Seville, was there, and uh, she was assigned to give Katie one-to-one -one care. Right, because Alec was junior, right? She yeah. wasn't an experienced nurse. Yeah. Uh, well, at this point, because Katie had, yeah, had gone into respiratory distress, I mean, they needed some, like you said, more senior. So it was so touch and go that uh reverend ian shelton spoke to the parents suggesting that they baptize their nine week old again reverend shelton has to get involved you know to to baptize another critically old child just in case yeah 
and the service was performed at her bedside, Katie's bedside. The next day, Katie was doing much better, and she was kept on the ventilator uh, for precautions. And she was uh, also hooked up to full monitors, um, and an apnea alarm was um, on her chest, uh, attached to her chest. Any changes in her status would be detected immediately. So, again, Beverly was assigned to give one-to-one care to Katie now that she was stable. With Katie being stable, uh, Peter and Sue um, went to go speak with the Reverend about burying Becky. So they left Katie's bedside, who had just almost died, to go speak to the Reverend about a ceremony for their uh, the twin. So they returned to the floor shortly after, and they arrived to hearing Alet screaming, recess, recess, while running with Katie in her arms. She had stopped breathing again. Recess. Oh, resuscitation. Resu- resuscitation. Oh, resuscitation. Okay. She was yelling, recess, recess, running with Katie in her arms. So she ran with her to the resuscitation room. And with uh, in a minute, the room was filled with doctors and nurses desperately trying to save the little baby's life. Thankfully, they were able to stabilize her within minutes. So can you imagine what Sue and Paul were going through? I No, I can't because I'm a twin. I can't even... I mean, I know they were only so old, but I, I can't imagine losing my other half. My And, you know, as a, as a parent, and I know you can think through those eyes too, like you just lost a baby, a, a baby, a twin, a preemie that was in the hospital for five weeks that you're so excited about and... And now you're the, the her twin is is you know in fighting to for, yeah. for survival. Fighting for survival. So instead of suspicion towards I think I called him Paul earlier and I, I'm mistaken, his name's Peter. Peter. Um instead of suspicion, Peter and Sue were grateful that Alet had been there and that her quick actions had saved Katie's life. So the grieving parents were really angry with the hospital. How is this happening? So instead of being suspicious of Alet, they saw her as kind of a hero because if it wasn't for her quick actions, you know, Katie would be dead. Right. Here's the Munchausen by proxy. So center of attention. Exactly. So the parents were like angry with the hospital and they felt the only two people they could trust now was the Reverend and Alet. So, over the next three days, it was Beverly that worked one-on-one, one-to-one with Katie, and mostly by the request of the parents. And they never left her side. And they became very close with Beverly. They saw her as a godsend. Um, So during this time, little Katie was put through a battery of tests, including a lumbar puncture, testing for meningitis. And her illness remained a mystery. On the third day, just when they were looking, when things were looking up, Katie crashed again. She suddenly stopped breathing again. So they battled for her life one more time. And Alet just stood back and comforted the parents. No, they're there. It'll be okay. Um, The recess room, sorry, the recess team worked on Katie for over 30 minutes. So she had stopped breathing for 30 minutes. Oh my God, that's dangerous. And when they saw that uh, she they saw, saw signs of life with her, they waited a couple minutes to see if she was stabilized, and then they flew her to QMC. Thank God. So get her out of that woman's yeah treachery, away so, from that woman's treachery. Unfortunately, the the damage had been had been done uh, to Katie. Um, uh, so Peter and Sue only left Katie's side for this reason to bury twin their other baby at st john's church in uh manthorpe on wednesday the 10th of april 1991 the official cause of death was sids sudden infant, infant death syndrome and sue couldn't believe it she's like she wasn't sleeping how could she die in her sleep when she was screaming and shaking you know so yeah um so they had no time to grieve they had to return to little katie's side after a week at QMC, Katie was transferred back to Ward 4 at Grantham Hospital. Why? I know. Why? And she improved, uh, improved greatly. And, um, and they hoped that it would just be a short stay again. 
While Kitty was recovering in uh, Grantham Casteven, the other children were becoming mysteriously ill with similar illnesses. So even why, like, so in that time, it wasn't just Katie and Becky. There were other kids simultaneously getting sick. And as you can imagine, the morale in the hospital was in the boots. So let's uh, talk about Bradley Gibson. That you heard his voice. That it was in the clip at the very beginning of the episode. So he was five years old, and he was admitted to uh, Ward Four with pneumonia. And while he was there, he suffered a heart attack. He was clinically dead for thirty-two minutes, but he miraculously, as you heard, uh, recovered and survived uh, the attack due to the excellent care of the hospital. How old was he again? Five. Five year olds don't have heart attacks either. No. Not generally. No, not unless, you know, they have underlying health conditions or like a heart problem, but he didn't. He was a healthy kid that, you know, had a chest infection and got pneumonia. Um, so how does a healthy child Yeah, have I mean, a- unless he went into respiratory arrest and then had a heart attack, but still, even... If anything, the heart would stop. I mean, we all die of a heart attack in the end. We all die of heart failure in the end. Right? I guess. Because all our hearts end up stopping, you know, but uh, you know what I'm saying. Um, So they couldn't find the reason why it happened. And he was uh, back at school uh, three weeks later. Um, Sorry, I missed that. Did he go to QMC? No, he recovered there. Okay. And then he went home and then he recovered and went back to school. But he has had nightmares ever since. And there was a period of time where he couldn't control his... um, where he couldn't control his bladder. He was having nightmares. Um, he was having some weakness um, in his one hand. So, you know, he suffered not long-term damage. Other, you know, the trauma of it. He still has nightmares to this day. Uh, so, but uh, he was lucky. Thank goodness. Next is uh, Christopher Peasgood. He was two months old. Um... His mom, Cresswin and Mick Peacegood, had lost a 10-month-old child two years earlier to SIDS. And this was their little miracle. They were terrified that Christopher could die of SIDS as well. So at seven weeks old, he developed a cough, um, and it progressed, and he was having difficulty breathing and feeding, and the antibiotics weren't working. I mean, it's likely a virus, right? Anyway, he was admitted to Ward 4 on April the 13th, 91, and he was diagnosed um, by Dr. Nania Kara with bronchiolitis. He reassured them that he felt it would be a short stay, a trend, and um, they left that night. He was on oxygen, uh, on an oxygen mask. They came back the next day. He was in an oxygen tent because sometimes babies just don't tolerate having the mask on their face. So, you know, you, it's, it's easier for them. And uh, Alec was assisting with his care. She encouraged the parents to go out and have a break and get some fresh air, of course. They were only gone for 10 minutes. When they returned, there was a crash team in his room working on him. Alec comforted them while they watched on with horror of of a crash team trying to save his life. So not too long after he he recovered and um, he was stabilized. At 8 p.m. it happened again. He had another cardiac arrest. And it was worse this time. And again, Reverend Shelton was called to baptize little Christopher. In fact, Reverend Shelton became his godfather because there was no one else. Oh, he became my God, these poor parents. And he was godfather to a couple of uh, kids there because of this. He was transferred to Q, uh, QMC. And like the other children that had been transferred, uh, he recovered well. Miraculously. Yeah. And he went home. He didn't have a psychopath nurse Mm -hmm. looking after him. And poisoning him. Interfering with his. Uh, So he went. Yeah. He went home three days later. And the day that he went home, another child, Patrick Elstone, was admitted to Ward 4. And he was seven years old at the time. His parents, Hazel and Robert, and twin brother. He had a twin brother, Anthony, another twin. No, yay, twins. So he developed a cold. And couldn't feed. So it's, you know, the same type of of that. So he was admitted for observation, supportive care, and he was recovering well. And within 48 hours, he was near death. He had suddenly stopped breathing at 8 p.m. The hospital was arranging to have him transferred to QMC. Um, And he recovered fully. Thank God for that. Yeah. 
So little Katie was in the hospital at the same time that Patrick was in the hospital. And they were kind of in like close to each other. If you can imagine like a room and there's sort of like a, a curtain in between, they would be on each other's side of that, right? One and two. Right. And Sue remembers seeing Alet running with Patrick in her arms, um, yelling that he had stopped breathing. So she remembers witnessing that this happened. Okay, so... How old was Patrick again? He was uh, seven weeks old. Okay, and then he got transferred to QMC and then yeah. recovered. Yeah, okay. but she remembers the moment when it happened because she was there and she saw it happen. She was probably running and saying, recess, recess. Yeah, exactly. Um, I'm here to save the day. And she also saw Patrick's uh, parents uh, returning to find their child in respiratory distress, uh, distress, like all the other ones, or failure. Um, And Sue was grieving herself. But you find out that Sue's just, Sue and Paul, we talk quite a bit about him. Um, Peter, sorry. (laughs) Uh, He, they they were comforting um, Hazel and Robert, knowing that she had, you know, she had gone through the same thing. So she was uh, comforting them. God bless him. And this is what uh, Hazel Elstone was quoted as saying. I couldn't believe it. When I left him, he had been playing and cooing. It wasn't the same child in there. I just looked at him and said, oh my God, look at his color. The sister dropped a blanket over him. Robert and I were just hanging on to each other. I love baby Sorry. cooing sounds. Oh, I know. They're the best. The, thought of baby the smell of their head and that little cooing and the little smiles. Oh, <laughs> I can't wait to be a grandma uh, Van just saying <laughs> uh, shortly after they arrived at the intensive care unit they asked if they wanted to baptize Patrick and they did so that morning at 7am he was improving and he would continue to do so so through the night and then into the morning okay He's, he's stable, he's doing well, and he would over the next couple of days. And he would go home soon after that from QMC, and he fully recovered. Oh, so he did, he did go to QMC, that's right. Yeah, and then he um, was discharged home from there. Thank goodness. Okay, so, but the staff at QMC are like, what the hell's going on with Grantham and Stephen? Because they may get one care, one kid a year come over there, one sick child. And they had gotten five in two months. Yeah, that's yeah. Doesn't happen in a small. So they started to talk to a senior consultant at their hospital, saying, "Like, you know, you need to look into this." Okay, so next we're going to talk about um, Claire Peck. Uh, She was 15 months old, the only child of uh, Sue and David Peck. She had a history of asthma. She was admitted to the hospital on April 22nd, 1991. She had had increased difficulty breathing over two days and um, was on a treatment of Ventolin at home. And the doctors felt um, that, you know, it would be a short stay. Asthmatics cover, recover really quick. I've seen it in uh, working the merge. It's just amazing. They'll come in like really, you know, wheezy and their oxygen is low and they're, they're really struggling. They're tiring out. They're not able to eat. And then we give them like a pulse of... Ventolin, atrovent, oxygen, that kind of stuff. Just kind of slamming with it. Maybe um, some dexamethasone. And it's like, is that the same kid? You know, they just, they recover fast. And then you monitor them, make sure that they don't have any rebound, um, you know, symptoms. And then you send them home on a, you know, a kind of, I don't want to say aggressive, but a steady um, prescription of Ventolin and, and that type of stuff at keep, home. Keep the inflammation down. Yeah, exactly. The, get that cycle under control. Yeah, um, so she recovered quickly and after a couple hours, she was discharged home with a Ventolin syrup and a puffer. I like, I can't tell you how many times that that's exactly what happens in the hospital or when I worked, they'd come in, they'd be there for a few hours. We monitor them, send them home. And, uh, and you know, that usually would be enough for them to have the puffers at home, follow up with the pediatrician and, and so on and so forth. So the next 24 hours went very well. Claire seemed mostly to be back to her normal self. So she was back at home. You know, they talk about how they spent the day out saying grandma and grandpa. Things were, you know, they had a a really lovely day together. Their little girl was was doing really well. But she started to wheeze again and had some uh, shortness of breath that had had come back. So they really hadn't, uh, you know, unfortunately kicked it. Uh, 
so Sue treated her with Ventolin and then around 1.30 to, to 4.30. So she gave her a treatment at like 1.30 and then 4.30 and then 6.30. And it didn't help. And the on-call doctor went to them with um, a, a portable nebulizer, which sort of, you know, gives a steady, instead of trying to just give the puff, it gives them a steady dose. Um, uh, and it's either, it gets into their to their system a lot better. Um he returned again at two and there was no improvement. So he said, okay, we need to take her back to the hospital and uh, give her some more treatment and observation. Um, was that like two in the morning then? No, two, sorry, 2 p.m. Oh, 2 so it was throughout the night, yeah. Um, her condition worsened after she arrived and then she went into respiratory distress and became cyanotic. She was placed on full monitors, oxygen, and nebulizer. Supec commented when she arrived to the floor that she saw Alet sitting at the desk and she remembers her from a visit before a few days earlier. Alet had been very rude and even hostile towards the pecs. She was also very cold towards little Claire showing little interest um, in, in her and like she wouldn't even engage with her. You have a seven week old baby and you're in and out of rooms checking on things. You're going to be like, Oh, I don't care. <laughs> what, like any normal what, person at what day or what time of your career baby. yeah and you'd be like you know you poke your head into different rooms and you go oh how's it going like that it, that's what part of being a pediatric nurse or doctor is like you you know you have interest in the well-being of kids and who can't help seeing a little kid and, and or saying hi and smiling to mom and dad or you know make them feel comfortable and, and safe that kind of thing and claire said you know you know talking to the little girl like uh, she doesn't want to talk to us. Who cares? You know, no big deal. Um, and Sue said that when she saw her, immediately she didn't like her. So when she came back on the floor, it's like, oh, it's her. Claire her, her ended up... evil meter was going off probably. Yeah. Um, I wouldn't like a nurse too if they were... I mean, you don't have to like your nurse. You just have to be respectful to your nurse. And if you're worried that, you know, you're getting, you know, uh, insufficient poor care... You talk to somebody, you don't, you know, like, yeah, yeah, yeah. but you can say, look, I'm uncomfortable, you know. Um, I mean, how much effort does it take to say hi? It doesn't because she's, you know, a, a, a complete a woman who was like, wanting to work with children. You'd think yeah. like, people who love to work with children. I mean, I know how much you love working yeah. with kids. Yeah, she, that just shows you how much of a psycho she is. So um, Claire was intubated and placed on a ventilator. The doctors had to prepare a special medication um, for Claire. This is this is like a very delicate. I'm not sure exactly what they gave her, but it was like very specific doses of things. So they pr were preparing it, and Claire was left alone in the treatment room with Alet, but also a senior nurse. So they were both at the bedside to make sure that she remained stable. But then Alet uh, suggested that the nurse that was with her go get Claire's parents who had been in the waiting room this whole time while this was going on. And so now Claire was alone with Alet. How convenient. You, I'll look after her. Yeah, you, you go. You, you go. I'm, I'm right here. Do you mind going and getting Claire's parents? Within seconds, Alet was calling for help. And uh, little Claire had stopped breathing. And her heart had also stopped. Claire's parents rushed back into the room. And they saw the crash team there trying to to save her life when they entered the room they saw that um what her little body was going through and she said to them stop it uh oh i think gosh. she's had enough like just just stop I just my heart just breaks for this how do you make that decision i think I'm that when they saw that what she was going through they were just uh don't do it don't put her through it anymore you know, I, just, I know. I mean, you can see me. I have tears in my eyes. Right yeah. Now. I'm just, I don't even know how you make that decision. Yeah, I, Such a little kid. I know. It's, but oh, I mean, I think man. they knew and I think that they just, um, they didn't want her to, to continue with, you know, getting this aggressive treatment and it, it really is, um, traumatic. Do, uh, David remembers seeing Alet that was sort of sitting behind them and they were she was just staring at them sorry say that again so alec was kind of behind them 
Who remembered seeing? David, the father. Oh, okay. So they were they were standing there and and watching, and Alet was sort of to their side and back, and she was just staring a hole through them, and uh, just listening and watching what was going on. Very, you know she was very sick, unwell person. Yeah, you know that she's like fucking enjoying it, right? This whole it's, everything she had just caused. She was just yeah. So Sue and David realized that there was no hope of saving their little girl and asked the doctors to stop. So they, um, you know, wrapped her up in a blanket and uh, held her and just uh, and said goodbye. So why, while Sue and David grieved, Alet was trying to draw attention to herself. I, I think this is where we're going to stop because um, there's, so much more that, that went on. I, I thought maybe we could wrap it up in one episode, but there's definitely way more. Part three. There's a part three. And Mary and I are going to re- record in a, in a couple of days once I get this done and out. And Mary's off in the morning. So we'll um, we'll record this. And it's just, it gets it gets worse. Um, and you'll see. I, I just want to talk a little bit about um, re- resuscitating a child that, is so critically ill and I have on occasion obviously um, been a part of the resuscitation team and it's a very difficult decision to when to call it especially when it's a child you don't ever want to stop no one wants to stop and you have the energy to go on forever if you have to but there's that there's that point where you you have to. It's just gotta be heartbreaking. And and what you're putting the little bodies through is absolutely horrific. And you don't want to do it. But you ha- you have to try. If you got that little bit of hope, you have to try. And I'm not gonna get into any details, but just trust me when I say that. You know, you have to put lines in, you have to do CPR, you have to inject medications, you have to do a lot of things. Their body goes through a major trauma when you're doing that. So when it's clear that there's nothing more you can do, you have to stop. And again, I don't think it's ever an easy call. It may be the obvious call, the right call, but it's never the easiest call. So when I, when I'm listening to this, I think about um, what the parents are going through, as a parent and just as a fellow human being. But I think about what the doctors and nurses are also going through. You're fr- like you're trained to do this, and you have to block out your emotions, so to speak. But you have to maintain those emotions in that that compassion and that empathy you have to con- maintain con- contain that because you have a very serious important job to do and if one gets mixed up with the other too much then you can't be effective but i know that feeling of not wanting to give up but also knowing that there's nothing more that can be done and it's it's fucking horrible like absolutely horrible and there's times when I've, when I've been working on children and, and the parents are screaming in the back. Like screaming in horror. Punching walls. Fainting. Because they're watching their, their child die. And it's... It's just flying all around. And so when I, I, I read this and uh, tell the story, and that's why it's really important for me to tell the story of the victims because I could just go on about Beverly Allen and list the victims but I want to tell their story okay so anyway that's where I'm kind of going to leave it uh, there yeah it just makes you think about how anybody could just like you said she just like look through them like how because she was enjoying it she was thoroughly enjoying herself this is a woman that isn't doesn't just have Munchausens. She has Munchausens by proxy. So you tie all those things up together. Her need for attention 
is so insane, so deep and obsessive that she'll do anything. And, and then I think about where does her rage come from? How do you injure, hurt, kill a seven-week-old? Like, where does that come from? And I don't know. I don't know. How can I, how can we know? How do we know? Um, before we end this, I, um, I want to, I've got a few people that I, that we should be thanking. Yes. I want to give out a big shout out to our new Patreon supporters. Thank you to Amanda Daly. Thank you, Amanda. Jody Connolly. You're the best, Jody. Cora Wolgamuth. I hope you said your your name right. You're awesome. Leanne Williams. Thank you, Leanne. And Stephanie Porter. Thank you, Stephanie. Holy crap, guys. Holy crap. Holy crappity crappity friggity frig. Thank you, thank you from the bottom of our hearts. Yes, this is absolutely amazing, all of you that uh, support us on Patreon. And we're just going to keep on putting um, out great content. And Mm -hmm. for those of you that are are interested in uh, supporting us um, uh, through Patreon, Go check it out. Stat Shocking Traumas and Treatments. You can see the perks that you get. And we're just going to keep trying to make them bigger and better uh, each month, week uh, that goes by. Um, we might have, and we're going to have a special episode. Well, they, um, soon they'll get extra episodes. Um, and Written by me. Yeah. Oh, yes. Mary has a new one coming up, but shh, we won't say anything yet. Because uh, I want to thank everybody who leaves uh, iTunes reviews. They mean a lot. More than getting the show seen and out there it's like i read them i'm like mary look check this out and i read it to her and and you are like yay well it's just so nice to hear feedback you know yeah and um no it's amazing thank you to everybody that's on the facebook group you guys are incredible the best group ever you're you're our uh, extended family and uh yeah thank you you're all amazing i love your support your listenership means the world to us and uh just uh, keep taking care of yourselves and, and staying safe. Yeah, taking and uh, just uh, God, stay safe out there. Absolutely, and love uh, love each other, and most importantly, love yourself. Peace. One love. True crime and it gets none realer. Sometimes it'll be the cure that'll kill you. Gotta watch out, yeah, you gotta watch your back. Cause you don't wanna be another episode on stat. Thank you for tuning in. Learn a thing or two. These medical mysteries can be unbelievable. Yeah, subscribe. Make sure you do that so you'll be tuned in and be ready for the next show. Stat.